0: Daniel how's it going hey
1: good morning Evan I uh, just uh I think we were talking before our podcast a little sleepy today got a puppy this week and uh there's no sleep when when you have a little one running around the house
0: uh how about you this morning um I'm tired but I'll survive <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, a puppy is lots of fun. We were supposed to get one. We did not over Christmas, thankfully, um, because I wasn't sure how I was going to do that. Plus, a client full-time, that requires travel. So (laughs) well, maybe like we're starting season two of our podcast, you could start a new season in life with one, Uh, but something to think about. I know. I can't believe we're coming back from a holiday break and we're off on our first podcast. So um, in this first episode, we're going to talk about Revenue Cycle's fear of AI Um, And uh, we're excited. It's been a lot of planning in the making um, for almost a year now. So listeners, um, we'll jump right in, I think, in a couple seconds.
1: Yeah, we've been I think we've talked to these guests almost six months ago. It feels like uh, just planning out season two, getting this episode in the books. Uh, So I'll jump right into our hot topic segment where we introduce our guests. And for our first guest, uh, X-Epic Claims Implementation uh, Team, uh, near to my heart because I was also at X-Epic, and focused on data analysis and automation. Uh, we're going to be welcoming our CEO and founder of Claim Capital, uh, who's responsible for the analytics framework and overall strategy direction. Welcome, Austin. Any uh, words that you want to share with us this morning?
2: No, appreciate you having us on. Looking forward to uh, chatting through this.
0: Well, I get to introduce our second guest, who has not just been uh asset to getting us prepped for this Podcast episode. However, they also are jumping in and giving us some strategic guidance on the Wilshire side too, of just some marketing and making some changes to our website, which none of us are great at. So um, we are super excited. Also, former X Epic claims and remands implementation specialist um, has been responsible for um, nationwide and multi-state installs. Um, the director of client operations and um, claim capitals. Um, building mindfulness meaningful partnerships in, within um, their community. Um, welcome, Spencer.
3: Yeah, thanks. Always happy to help where I can. Uh, excited to be on with you all this morning.
0: Yeah, we're so- excited to have you both. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and for those that don't know Claim Capital, uh, you can go on Google right now and search Claim Capital. And for me, at least, it's the first result that pops up. Pretty nifty. Uh, and probably a good starting spot to uh, dig around on the website and check it out if you're wondering like, what is it that we're talking about today? Uh, but Austin, Spencer, we're happy to have you on the podcast today. We're, we've been planning this again for quite a while, but I want to jump in and just get for our listeners a little bit from you both. What are the cool things that you all are doing at Claim Capital? Like w- w- what What should people think about when they're thinking about Claim Capital right now?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So we kind of have three uh, main routes that we're focusing our development efforts towards right now. So uh, one of them being denials analytics, right? Kind of one of the core things that is uh, impacting revenue cycles, right? Is all these denials you're getting and now you're not getting paid as much as you should be. So um, also what you guys are most familiar with uh, us over at the Wilshire Group on. So that's kind of taking all of an organization's as much as we can, historic claims and remit data. uh, And then we're trying to identify the root cause Um, and the actual trends of those denials so the goal here is not only to you know we're not trying to appeal denials that have already happened we're trying to stop these from happening in the first place so they you know are no longer uh, an ailment to these hospitals Um, and then of course we want to convert those trends um, into actionable workflows or discrete changes that we can actually make in the system um, which is what's going to stop those from happening Uh, the second one um, we're working with uh, one of our partners on underpayments as well so that's going to be identifying those opportunities for bulk appeals um, based on those underpaid professional claims. Uh, And one of the focuses there is not only um, hitting on those large issues, you know, there's expensive things that cover up maybe like 80% of a group's underpayments, right? But we also want to make sure we're getting a positive ROI on a lot of that smaller stuff too. So like that 10 to 20%, that can sometimes be um, both more complicated to find and then also more expensive to recover as well. Um, We want to do that in a way where it's actually beneficial to the groups. Uh, And then our third one is a little newer that we've been working on. It's called process mining. Um, This is, uh, there's a lot of information on this on our website as well, like you referenced. Um, And what this is going to be doing is it's taking uh, a lot more data than just your 835s and 837s, but we're trying to provide a comprehensive um, life of a claim. So giving these hospital groups, the ability to see individual claims in every single track that they take along uh, its individual life cycles. So, Once we identify uh, those full life cycles, we see where the errors are and where the issues are. Uh, We're actually partnered with an RPA vendor so that we can automate these manual workflows and try to make it as easy as possible to implement solutions.
0: Cool. On the denials front, I know that you guys are partnering with a lot of like Wiltshire and 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 claim capital, we've been partnering with our clients to like try to slide in and get, and get some of those up and going. Can you, can you tell how, you know, for our listeners that are Epic users, at least how, how is that like partnering in with kind of the Epic, you know, component of denials where they're doing, you know, looking at slicer dicer and looking at in those components. I know you're looking at the prevention process of it, but, you know, at the same time, we're trying to leverage, you know, the technology that Epic has already and in, in kind of dual partner both of the systems together. So,
2: yeah. And I mean, Epic gives you a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of reporting. I think Slicer Dicer was one of the biggest advancements that I had seen. But I think a lot of what boiled down, what it all boiled down to, and this was really my impetus for starting Claim Capital, was that a lot of the solutions today do a very good job of showing you what was denied. And you can add a few extra slices in there, see what payers, see what procedure codes. But actually getting to the root cause of that denial is something that I thought was lacking, where you have this wealth of data, you have so much information, but if all you're going to be looking at are you know different graphs, that gets you part of the way there, but there's just so much more potential whenever you start implementing more advanced technology, which you know we'll be talking through today, in terms of applying advanced statistics, applying machine learning. And I think that's something that the overall industry is a little bit behind on.
1: I think the the concept of machine learning and just AI in general, um, I mean, the topic of our our podcast today is the fear of AI. As you all have started out in this journey, have there been any like lessons learned or unexpected road bumps that you all have had to tackle and navigate when it comes to getting your projects up and running?
2: Yeah, I think part of it is really just getting people to uh just have faith in it, right? Because it's something that it hasn't really been applied in healthcare to a lot of extent and you know, everybody I think has heard of AI, they've heard of machine learning, but it's still so much of a black box in terms of what it's doing, how it works and how it can actually help an organization. So there's just a healthy amount of skepticism, I think which is one of the main hurdles that uh, that we try to help with any client that we're pitching to in terms of just making sure that they understand discreetly what is actually happening and why this works.
0: So I know, you know, for instance, I mean, a lot of organizations have been, you know, toying with the idea of AI and then how does this like work with their EMR systems and what and what's the leverage between the two? So, you know, like focusing in on that going back to focusing in on that denial front, you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of ways to slice and dice data and, and look at it from that point. But really getting to the root cause really either has caused organizations to have to have clinicians do the review or have revenue cycle people and clinicians deep dive and look at it. Um, how is technology? How are you guys seeing the denials technology on that front being able to take it and say, you know, this payer uses this remittance code and these remark codes differently than what national standards are, but this is what, the, this is what the root cause of that denial is for that payer. Are you guys getting down to that level of the detail or are you guys still, you know, in that infancy stage of like scratching at the surface and having to figure out how to map it? Cause I know in my former partnerships with a couple of clients, we've had to go down and, you know, really look at it and, and leverage um, using extensions and things of that nature within Epic, for instance, to say, okay, for this payer, when they give you this remark and this remit code together, the ARC and CART code combo, it means this, but when you get it from Blue Cross, it means that, Um, and you need to process it that way. And, and that's, you know taking months and months of like analyzing claims and steering it in that direction so you know trying to look at how you guys are leveraging ai in this instance how are you guys how how are you taking that and and speeding up the process for clients um because i think it's just cool and I, I, listeners we're not trying to do sales pitch we're really trying to learn like from a standpoint of like hey They've figured it out. They they've mapped it out. So you know, let's break down some of the fears and see what what are some of those return on investments that you can get from from leveraging companies like Claim Capital. But you know, in in denials is most healthcare's biggest hurdle right now. Um, As payers continue to speed up the process and they're purchasing AI to actually cause the denial. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, I think, one of the biggest questions, and I think one of the causes of the delay in actually getting a you know working solution that, you know, you have all this data, but even across the millions of claims that an organization has, you can't just feed all of that into a single model, because like you said, you have all these different payers, and not only do they send different denial codes for different reasons, but the actual causes of those denials are going to vary as well. So even if they send you the same denial code, it could be for an entirely different reason. And so a lot of this is really figuring out how to silo that data in an intelligent way in order to make sure that the trends that the models pick up are actually going to be around any one given issue. So that way you're not actually blurring the lines of the analysis, right? So you typically aren't going to want you know, Medicare surgeries to be evaluated with your commercial payer outpatient visits, because those are entirely separate, uh, you know, services, and they could be denied for entirely separate reasons. So there's a lot of kind of pre planning into it, you don't just dump 10 million claims from an organization into a model and click run, there's a substantial amount of kind of pre processing there to figure out what makes sense to silo off together to analyze separately.
3: Yeah, and uh, to add a little bit there, I think one of the good call-outs here, and Evan, you were kind of getting into it, you know, saying with one specific client, right, you're doing three months to work on this extension or whatever um, is going on the billing side there. We know that, you know, everyone in the community has their very unique scenarios that they go through for um, for each of their billing cycles, right, whether they're specializing in um, whatever outpatient surgeries or whatever, you know, Austin's example just now was um, the flexibility of these models to... Kind of bracket out and consider the uniqueness of each of these uh, customers uh, is definitely one of the value adds. So yes, you can eventually then you know compare these miles to say you know um, hospital X in this state compared to hospital Y in this state. Well, we know we know the payers are going to be billing differently there, but you still have the flexibility one to split them both out, but then also see what trends uh, exist between them. And so now you're just kind of adding um, more to the value or kind of the, uh, the umph that's backing these models.
1: If I can ask a quick question on just the solution. So I'm, I'm like poking around the website. I'm trying to get a little bit of feel like, how does this work? It sounds like we're pulling a lot of data out. We're doing, we're plugging it into a model and then we're having a, an output that is going to be a recommendation. I'm assuming that some sort of build change using like, I imagine you all are using your Epic expertise and other just experience and knowledge to, uh, put together those recommendations. But for like a, someone who's like looking at AI and thinking about like, how do I get this up and running? Like what what's the initial work that's gonna be required and then the output? I'm assuming there's some work there as well. How do you all talk to your, your clients or other potential clients about uh, the work that's required for this and how that really has an
2: ROI? Yeah, I think that is absolutely key to the business model is that as you look at healthcare organizations today, They're already so understaffed, so inundated with disparate software systems, tons of different dashboards that they could go look at. The last thing that they need is an entirely different system, something that integrates into their existing ones, or really just putting any amount of work on their teams. And so that's where we're able to take on the vast majority of that workload on our end from having that Epic Expertise where all we need is the claim and remittance data. As Spencer said, we grab the historic amount, one to two years to actually train the models, to figure out the causes of what's going on. And then we actually produce the recommendations of, okay, instead of adding this modifier with this criteria, like you're doing today, we need to modify that extension in order to populate it in this new scenario. And so, you know, we can tell an organization what the data is saying. So there's obviously some amount of review you have to run those solutions or those proposed changes by their subject matter experts make sure that it lines up with you know their understanding but it's not just providing a new dashboard or you know hey you know here's the output of this machine learning model that's really gross go figure it out it's actually us doing the interpretation to figure out how can we actually translate what was found in the data into these actionable solutions so that way, the lift on the organization is as small as
3: possible. Yeah, and I, and I that's a great question. That's something that I can say at least is personally always on the forefront of our minds. You know, coming from Epic, uh, and we've done these really long installs, and you know, I've I've seen the stress, and I've spoken with the CFOs, directors of revenue cycle, whatever they may be, their positions, and like these installs are extremely stressful, and they use a lot of resources, um, and it's a tough time for these groups. So, you know, we've had a lot of growth in the past year, and one of the questions that we always ask is. How how can we make this easier for our clients? You know, we want to be doing as much of the work that we can on our side of things so that the process is as streamlined and easygoing as possible. We want it to we don't want it to feel like an install, you know, we're not putting any software on their systems. We want them to kind of just like, you know, come into work the next weekend and it's already all set up, right? Like no stress on their their ends.
0: Are you guys seeing a struggle though with the IT, the counter, you know, our counterparts all in the IT side. So if, if we're looking at having to put an extension in or write some claim type of rule, it, it, you know, what what struggles have you seen with the adoption? Cause I mean, definitely there's a fear. I mean, as a former revenue cycle leader, right? Like there's always this fear for staff of automation or using AI and how is that going to take away from their jobs or what they're doing? It, and really what we what I've seen in your guys' denial work so far, it's really adding to it's making the appealing staff, the staff that write the appeals be able to be stronger in that and reducing what they're and really targeting in those more complex ones where it this is taking away those easy, those easy, quick wins and, and giving them the adequate time to work on the complexity ones of you know having to write line by line or work with a physician in those components. But on the, on the counterpart side, there's not only a fear with revenue cycle, there's definitely a fear with, you know, the IT and IS side, uh, side of the house as well. And then them having the bandwidth to adopt and put in those extensions or put in those things that we need. Um, are you guys seeing organizations like yours trying to offset that or offset some of and provide you know doing some of that work for for IS or are you are you even you guys in particular are you just jumping in and saying hey here's what our recommendation is and it's still having to go through that what can be a long tedious you know ticketing process to get something implemented
2: yeah that definitely varies organization to organization i think one of the things is that you know the problem isn't really going to go anywhere without the solution. So even if it does end up becoming a ticket and it doesn't actually end up getting built in for a month or two, it really just varies on the organization with how they're prioritizing it. I think one of the things that we do that is beneficial is that we can actually tie a discrete dollar amount to each of those issues, right? We can tell you exactly how many claims for how much money uh, was denied for that given issue that this fix is uh, expected to address. And so I think that prioritization helps a fair amount. One thing that we do stray away from is, I don't think we should be the ones going into your system to actually do the build, right? You have analysts who know the ins and outs of your system, who are comfortable with it, who, you know, I think would take priority in going in and then actually adding that recommendation. You know, we can give you some advice based on what we had seen during our time at Epic, but ultimately the hands in the system, I think, are best done uh, from the organization side, since they have that, you know, wealth of knowledge. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of the line is that we provide the recommendations. Uh, and then whenever they, the organization is ready to go in and add in that fix, we're there to help them. But yeah, the prioritizations mainly for each organization.
3: Yeah. And I think there's something to say on the quality, uh, kind of the qualitative side of things too, right? So like Austin was saying, you know, we can tie the dollar amounts um, Teach these items so they know like the impact that will will occur from implementing you know whatever workflow fix it is, um, but also just the way that we run our process. I think one of the things that I focus on at least from my position as you know client operations is really building that relationship and that trust as the process goes on, um, so that by the time we get to the point where we are offering recommendations, like they know that we are hearing what is unique about them. We know what their specific pain points are. Um, we know how much time their analysts do have, right. So we can help them prioritize, um, which changes we should be making first. And I think the effort that we put to kind of build that trust along the way, I mean, and I, we have a local client here who is, is great to work with and I love working with them, but like when we give them recommendations, they know it's, you know, coming from a place of full understanding and we really know what their system is doing right now. Um, and the confidence I think that they have in those, um,
0: recommendations just shows. I think it changes the environment too in that regards. Versus, you know, there are other organizations out there that are like, "Oh, we'll supplement being able to do this," but it 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 takes away from the actual IT and analysts and revenue cycle people too from knowing what was the change, how did the change go, seeing it, testing it, experiencing it along the way when somebody else comes in and just tries to say oh we'll, we'll supplement you and just put it in i think that that becomes a struggle of who's going to maintain that and really understand that build with the his, history as well well we got to take a quick break and we'll be right back claim capital is a team of ex-epic staff focused on preventing denials
3: instead of showing what was denied which is the standard for other solutions available today claim capital pinpoints why claims are denied by training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue.
0: And we're back.
1: All right. Uh, so, we're continuing our conversation, fear of AI. One of the things that I have fear just in the back of my mind when it comes to AI is that it's always lagged. So it's taking historical data uh, and it's going to learn over time. But like our payers change requirements, it seems like every day. Um, and there's tons of updates coming in at a federal and state level as well. Uh, question for you all just when thinking about your models and your technology, like how quickly have you found that it's able to catch up? And is there any like preventative action that you all can do in advance to? have your the model be s- smarter in a, in, a, in a quicker sense?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. I think really what happens is that you're able to train a model based on the historic behavior, right? And so if there is an issue in that, then you can work to address that. But that model is still going to be running and feeding in new data, new data. If you look at processes today in terms of, you know, okay, a payer made a change in their adjudication logic, and now they're sending this new denial if you're actually using a denial report for that, it's probably gonna be a few months before that reaches a dollar amount or a volume that it actually gets on your radar. And I think that's the beauty of using the technology is that as soon as we see a deviation in the trend, it's gonna be flagged in our system on our side. And so that helps us kind of expedite the identification of the issue. And so you're right, there definitely could be a lag in terms of, okay, at what point do we get enough information to actually find the cause of this new issue? Uh, I think that's always going to be uh, something that, you know, it depends on how much data is actually flowing through. But instead of waiting three months down the line before you look at your denials dashboard and you see, wow, I'm getting a lot more CO16s from Aetna this month. I don't know what's going on. That's something that I think the actual technology that's just continually feeding in data has a much stronger leg over than uh, existing solutions.
1: And is your solution when I like we're feeding, you're feeding data, you're, I'm assuming it's almost like daily that you're receiving some sort of data. Um, is that uh, is there some sort of portal or platform or like how are clients able to like review this and get sort of that real time feel of the information that's being sent your way and being pushed through a model?
2: Yeah, we usually do daily or weekly data feeds. And then from that, you know, whenever we get alerted on our end that, hey, there's something going on here with this subset of data, all these Aetna surgeries are coming back different than what we expected. uh, then that's where we we typically provide monthly reports to say, hey, here's what's new. Um, so if there was the need to do something in the interim, if you see a massive spike that needs addressed a lot faster, then that's something we can kind of do ad hoc. But Yeah, we mainly just work with uh, daily data feeds, provide those kind of monthly audits, and then we're able to address those issues faster than what we've seen currently happening.
0: So uh, let's just pretend we're a new client. We're interested, right, in in wanting to bring in some form of an AI solution into our organization. What are things that we should be thinking of first and foremost? Like, you know, is our do we have the right systems do we need to modify how we do some of our workflows things of that nature because I, I mean i can look at I'm, my current client everything lives in their clearinghouse. they're still editing in the clearinghouse versus pushing the pushing their you know errors back into epic and having to fix it and that's something we're working on right now is migrating everything back to epic so epics their source of truth um their correspondence on denials is in a third-party system. It's not scanned back into Epic if, if it's coming on a paper remit and it, it, or not even paper remit, just a letter, you know, explaining what the denial is versus it coming straight from the ARC and CART codes as the cash posting team's posting. So if I was just looking at just in general, like, hey, I want to implement some form of AI to help speed and expedite my teams out, what are some of the foundational things that I should be thinking of from a revenue cycle perspective?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question as well. I think, you know, as far as uh, if you're getting back, you know, paper remits, not a whole lot you can do there, but I'm pretty sure it's around 98% are going to be on the electronic side. Uh, In terms of the disparate sources of that information, a lot of different systems that you're working in now, I think the beauty of denial analytics is that you have really most, if not all of the information that you need just from the claim and remittance file. And so that's gonna be industry standard. It doesn't matter if you're on Epic or Cerner or Athena, that is industry standard file formats. And those trends aren't really going to change. You know, you might have to come up with a different solution in terms of how are we going to address this issue? If you're not on Epic, then that's something that we would have to help an organization dig into is, okay, well, what functionality do you have available? Or if you're working with bridge routines in the clearinghouse still, then you know that makes it a little bit more complicated. But if we know the cause of the issue, then there's got to be some way to implement that solution, no matter where that information is getting changed.
3: Yeah, and, and I will. Say, I think to add on to that, Austin, you know, or Evan, your question, you know, like we're a new client and we were thinking about trying to implement new technology and AI, right? So, um, kind of what we talked about earlier when we we're getting like historic data, right? The more data we have the better we can train our models and then the better output we'll be able to provide, right? So um, it's, I don't think you always have to start with that jump to AI, especially varied on like the size of your hospital organization, right? So, um, but just because you might not be sending millions and millions of claims a day doesn't mean you can't still utilize more advanced technology for your denial analytics, right? So, um, you know, one of the first things that we mentioned, uh, it was either Austin or myself, but, you know, advanced statistical models as well. There are ways that you can still crunch and analyze this data data far more effectively and efficiently than you're currently doing without even getting into the realm of AI yet so yes we want to get up to that point if the data allows it Um, but you're not there's there's still ways you can uh, use this technology even if you're not getting to AI and that's something we try to be very uh, transparent of as claim capital right I think a lot of times in the industry it's it's marketable right it sounds cool when you can say you're using AI and machine learning and we're going to Promise you all these giant things that are going to solve your systems, right? But what we try to do, um, and we'll do this on like our first pitch calls, right? Or as we continue a process, we want to be very transparent about when we are using machine learning and when we aren't, uh, just so that there's kind of an understanding and we can, you know, not only just be open with them about what's actually happening with their data and how we're processing it, um, but just to kind of expand that knowledge in healthcare in general, right? You know, we have this, we're talking about this fear of AI, like, Let's just be open and honest about what the AI is actually doing and not just use it as a marketing term.
0: Yeah, because AI is not the fix. It's part of the solution to the fix. And I think that's where other organizations out there, you know, if I go back a year and a half when I was sitting in an operational uh, director role and see and I'm being pitched from... Multiple companies. It was well. Here's your. This is a fix, and this is going to do this, and this is going to do that. And I'm like, well, is it really? Because I still need somebody to read the payer policy, and I still need somebody to analyze that payer policy and interpret it from a regulatory perspective. And and yes, this is going to help us with our solution, but it's not the solution. It's it's a combination of it. And I think I think that's what's really helped us like understand and and learn from both of you is what sets uh, sets you guys apart from others and. Is this is a means to developing a solution? This isn't the solution, and I think that I think that's the the biggest difference. And what organizations also have to get over a fear of is it's not here to replace people. It's to help leverage and, and leverage your people differently, and use them and use their talents and skills differently, and let machine work do what machines can do, or analyze analyze data where instead of having to have all the statistical components of, you know, somebody trying to turn and burn it. I mean, at my last organization that I was a leader of, I had one denials analyst. That's all she did was analyze data reported out run denials, prevention meetings, things of that nature. And she did an amazing job. And if she's listening, Heidi, you still do an amazing job because I reached out to her a couple of weeks ago for, for some assistance, but but i think from the, those perspectives i mean we organizations underutilize people's skills um, because they don't have the, they're fearful of implementing you know something to help support them in that regard. um so you know kind of sticking with what where where what's kind of setting people apart you know what are some of those fears that you've seen organizations having to overcome in in hell, in in trying to look at AI or other or other solutions, and maybe it's not even just AI, like automation in general, or you know, implementing new workflows. I, I my current client, I walked in, I've never seen this much paper, printed paper, still to this day, in in a revenue cycle space, and it's not claims, it's like remit, it's like correspondence coming back from. Organizations and things of that nature. And I'm like, why aren't we using right facts and cues and things of that nature, you know? Uh, but I think it, it. This organization definitely has shared. They are fearful of you know change in that regards, and not even it's not even the staff. The staff are craving it. I think it's sometimes the leadership. But what are the things that you're hearing from clients, or you know, in your past Epic lives we're hearing as people are trying to take on, you know, upgrades or, or automation as the system can leverage things?
2: Yeah, that's another good question. I think the main thing that I've seen, uh, like you said, it doesn't just have to be fear of AI, but fear of any sort of automation or new technology is really around the idea that any hour that someone on the staff spends on something new is an hour that isn't spent on their existing process. So if they have a biller who's working in a work queue, they know that, okay, an hour of doing that, they can work 10 to 20 accounts. That's tangible, that's guaranteed ROI because that's what they've been doing for the last five, 10 years. And so if you were to introduce something else that they would be doing with that hour of time, working on automating something or looking at a new system or a new technology, that's an hour that isn't spent doing that existing process. And so whenever you have really, you know, uncertain ROI or a project where it's a brand new technology, then I think that causes a lot of concern because that's time that they aren't doing, you know, what what has that tangible ROI. Uh, And then I think the other point is that it's, uh, I think there's a healthy amount of skepticism over, you know, what is this going to be doing, right? You know, we have Nancy in the billing office who's been working here for 30 years, who knows the ins and outs of are Medicaid's billing complexities better than anyone else in the state? So what is your machine going to pick up in a week that Nancy hasn't picked up in the last 30 years? And so I think that goes back to our point where, you know, we're not saying that we're replacing uh, any of our staff, we're really augmenting their ability. Because no matter how strong the knowledge base is of your staff, there are things that humans are just not capable of that machines are. You know, if you want to analyze millions of claims with billions of data points across years worth of information you know that is something that you really need to leverage technology to do and so there's insights that can be derived from that and that no matter how strong someone's understanding is in the policy or the requirements uh, there's just stuff that that data is going to augment uh, that's otherwise unavailable
3: Yeah, and and I think to add to that, Austin, because what you mentioned there is that kind of disbelief of what the AI is doing, right? Or like what its full capabilities are. Um, That's where where my mind always goes to. I was was at the Becker's Healthcare uh, Revenue Cycle IT Conference in Chicago uh, last October. Um, And there was a panel that I remember. It was called like What's Keeping CEOs and CIOs Up at Night, right? It was a great panel. Um, and people were talking about, you know, cybersecurity, uh, thin workforces, all that stuff. But one person, um, I spoke with him afterwards because he was the only one who mentioned like technology, right, and adopting new technology. Um, he was nice enough to give me some time after one-on-one to talk. His, um, his name was Tushar, Tushar Naik, um, Director of Revenue Integrity for Prime Healthcare, if I'm remembering the uh, title correctly. But um, what we kind of talked about, what we both agreed on is that this weird, there's this weird catch-22 for people in these decision-making positions where – they know that there is a pressure to automate and optimize and adopt new technology. But then the other side of that, which I also just mentioned, is this just lack of trust or understanding for what the technology can actually do. So then it becomes kind of uncomfortable for someone in this, you know, key stakeholder position to kind of stick their neck out and say, I'm going to put my trust in this new technology because I don't fully understand it. So they're feeling this pressure. But then it's almost like it's harder for them to actually act on it because I mean a lot of this stuff is pretty bleeding edge, right? Like a lot of AI things, your people's first thought still goes to like what Terminator movies, right? Like that's that's people's first thought when you say AI or machine learning stuff. So um, I think the 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 thing we have to do is work around and try to offer that understanding where we can, which I think this you know this podcast is a great one of those avenues avenues to do that. You know, give an opportunity to talk and discuss it. Um, But until we can really alleviate that fear or offer more understanding in the entire healthcare revenue cycle realm, um, it's going to be hard for them to have that comfortability to start
0: adopting new things. I think one... Oh, go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say, it's
1: interesting you brought up Becker's because one of the thoughts that I've had while we're sitting here is like, is there a conference? Is there um, an avenue where we're talking about these things in a a general format? I think one of the best selling points or ways to alleviate that that can that comfort or can or give comfort and alleviate concern is to have another person that you know has has used it like if you know another health system has used this technology um and they're like yeah it works for us um like that that's that's a better selling point i think than anything else you can arguably show someone Uh, i think about like the introduction of emr systems just like everybody was on paper it was like almost 20 years ago and I, I, i was one of the first patients on Epic, actually, like my health system growing up was uh, DuPage Medical, and they were one of Epic's first clients. And I remember being like, wow, this is a computer and everything had been in paper before. Um, And nurses were still really skeptical of it. But over time, I think now it's like, everybody uses electronic. If you're on paper, it's like, what the heck are you doing? Um, Do you know if there's avenues? I know we've had like Naham and HFMA on here on our podcast to talk about work being done in other areas of healthcare. But is there like a best place or things that you know about to get plugged into to learn about AI and machine learning? I
2: think specifically as it's applied in healthcare, uh, I'm not familiar with too many resources. I think that's just where as it becomes more widely adopted, that's where those avenues will open up. I think that is going to be one of the main topics and it will continue to be at really all of these major conferences. Uh, in the healthcare revenue cycle space and beyond, even on the clinical side, the applications of AI there are tangible as well. So I think uh, it's still definitely early on, but I think the existing kind of infrastructure for sharing those new ideas and best practices, I think that's only ever going to grow and start to incorporate more and more of, hey, here's how we apply this new technology.
3: One, one thing at least, I guess a little more directly, that one thing that we like to do is if we are having a sales call or an introductory meeting with a new client, like we will actually take, you know, five minutes and we give a baseline overview of what ML and AI actually is. So, you know, maybe it's not a, a conference or an AI thing that we're kind of doing widespread, but we, we want to take the time to say, hey, we know this can be um, kind of new. And we know a lot of times in the industry, there's a really big black box Um, from other people who are advertising the same thing and they won't really tell you what it's doing. We want to try to do what we can to alleviate that more directly with the people we're working with and give them an opportunity to ask questions and learn more. So, you know, maybe we lose some of the snazziness of like a sales call and like, you know, keeping it all smooth like that. But we think it's very much worth the time to say, hey, here's what's actually processing your data. If you have questions, we
0: can absolutely talk about it more so that you're more comfortable before we move forward. I think that's what sets you guys apart as we learn more about what Claim Capital is doing. It's about education, right? And that's like the foundation for you guys is always educating. I haven't been on a call yet where I haven't heard you really educating us or educating a client or hearing from our clients that we both have together about you know, that education component. And that I think that's what sparks us bringing you in. I also think that the difference is, is when you talk about return on investment, you know, from a revenue cycle leader, it's always been for solutions coming in. I mean, I can think of a handful off the top of my head. I, I won't give them airtime, but <laughs> they, they definitely are always like, oh, well, you're going to save X number of FTEs. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And it's about like, reducing your labor. And that's even, I can think of some of the other AI technology uh, that's out there that, you know, was pitched to me as a former leader of saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to replace five of your pre-registration staff or insurance verifiers because our technology is going to be able to do this. And I'm like, well, are you going to really replace them? And I'm having to do layoffs. That puts a distaste in my mouth, right, as a leader um, in that regards. But or are you going to offset them and I'm able to repurpose what they're doing or give them more strategic time? Or am I, or you're going to reduce my denial component? So I still need these individuals, but you're going to help me have an ROI, different, a different type of ROI in that component. So, you know, what have you started to see And what are you guys doing as well on, you know, what is that return on investment and what should leaders be really looking at from an organizational perspective for return on investments now, given that technology and the pitch of reducing staff isn't really there because we're all in a labor shortage. I mean, I can, my current organization I'm working with, we have 28 openings in in PBS alone um, and trying to find people is really hard um, because one, they don't even want to come back into a hybrid environment or do they want to go, um, uh, into something else. So, you know, kind of trying to get your guys feelers on that.
2: Yeah. I think the wealth, the value of the information that staff, especially longtime staff have is irreplaceable. I mean, technology is not going to replace that. They might be able to supplement that or streamline some of the processes to reduce, you know, the, really manual tasks that those people are doing, but I don't think there's any shortage in other work that those staff can be redirected to. And whenever you look at the amount of money left on the table through things like denials and underpayments, I think the latest change healthcare report cited an average of around 11% denial rate. So you're talking over $300 billion a year in denials. I think that is a much larger thing to target than trying to reduce a few FTEs that, yeah, they may not have been needing to do those manual processes, but it probably helps somewhere else uh, that isn't being automated due to this crazy labor shortage. So I think in terms of ROI, that also comes down to the business model as well, where one of the things that we like to offer is that we only take a percentage based on what we're actually able to help address, right? There's no no risk if you know if nothing is found then there's no financial obligation and so i think that is a very good kind of way to dip your toe in the water in terms of okay how can we try something without necessarily being on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement this comprehensive solution that we don't really have a guaranteed roi of anybody can say you know yeah i think we're going to reduce your fte's by 5 in this area but At the end of the day, you know, after you're done with
0: that implementation, the actual results may vary. Well, um, we need to take another quick break and we'll be right back.
4: There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access the National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance.
0: And we're back.
1: All right. Uh, So we get to jump into the Wilshire Lab, which we hadn't really done in the last couple episodes of season one. But here in season two, we're going to jump right back into it. And we do have a question from a listener. Uh, So thank you for, for your question today. Uh, I'm just going to read this verbatim just to make sure I don't mess this up, but how should organizations look at denial categories when health plans are not appending claim adjustment reasons the same way? And I'll open that up to the floor. I think everybody but me probably has some insight there.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think the first thing that you need to look at is whether or not it's actually a denial, because there's some payers that can send a reason code uh, or and a remark code that other payers are actually using as a denial that you know, that given payer may not be. So I think the first line of defense is making sure that what's coming back is actually a denial. And if it's not, uh, for example, there's one pair that I had seen using, I think it was an OAA1, which is just a generic denial code uh, that other payers use as a denial code, but they were using it uh, instead of an OA 23 to say this is what the previous payer paid. So it wasn't actually a denial. So I think the first line of defense, uh, especially if you're on Epic, is to look at the actual uh, remit actions or the remark code actions, um, and then make sure that everything is actually mapped appropriately. So doing RMC extensions to say, hey, if it's this payer sending this code, then have a different action than denial. And then in terms of actually categorizing what, is a denial, that is unfortunately going to take some amount of review, because understanding why a payer is sending something or what they're actually sending back is going to vary payer to payer pretty drastically. Uh, And so once you're able to figure out, you know, okay, are how are they actually sending this? I think one of the things that we've seen as being very beneficial is to kind of silo out each payer, like we had mentioned, because even if they're sending similar Denial codes, it could be for entirely different reasons.
0: I think the add there for the listener, um, you know, understanding where your claim is being processed is also key. So you could have, for instance, blue cross, your local blue, blue cross, blue shield, or anthem. Um, a, hey, are doing the local adjudication, but when they look at the federal plan, it could be going from them for the first round of adjudication to over to the national processor. And then from there getting a different remark code. So sometimes that's why you might end up with a secondary remark, um, coming in, or even that claim being reprocessed by the payer and understanding like who touched it. Um, health is another one of those payers, you know, just out there, like Centene is their parent company. Most of the commercial claims are now processed at, at the national level. However, their local Medicaid lines and, um, managed Medicare lines are still usually processed at the local level and through their individual processors. So you get HealthNet as your global, but you're getting the remark codes coming in two different formats and two different ways because of which area is processing those claims. So it's important for your um, follow-up teams and your collection teams and your cash posting teams to really understand what those are. And then, you know, I always recommend when you go to do an extension mapping or look at looking at that, because most systems have that capability now, is pausing and saying, okay, I need to look at not only my hospital claims, I also need to look at my professional claims. Because if you are a single business office or a CBO, you're going to need to map those extensions the same way, or you need to know where. There is difference in the professional claim and the hospital claim, and be able to tell your systems to do to treat them differently because they could mean different things, even in that regards for for down to that type of claim. Whether it's a fifteen hundred or UBO four, payers are sending leveraging those remarks differently as well. So. The last time I did this, I locked a team away for a week. Um, All of my billing managers and my cash posting team and they in the denials team and in revenue integrity actually at the table as well. And they had to go through and look at pair policies, pair trends, pair all of that to be able to leverage that in in the start, because that's actually how it's going to inform your slicer dicers when you're looking at denial trends and things of that nature and leveraging those components as well, um, outside of it. So it how are you, tr- how are you treating those ARC and CART codes? Um, nobody applies them per national standard of what the actual interpretation is. All right. Well, we only had one question, Daniel, for the, um, Wilshire lab this time, but listeners, if you, um, this is a quick plug. If you do have questions, thoughts, or want to share ideas for upcoming I- items, you know, please email us at the Wilshire podcast at the Wilshire Fun stuff. Thanks for joining
1: us today, Spencer Austin. It's great having you. I know I like I was just plugging around on your website this whole time. It's it's really fun to uh, talk about this space. I think it's pretty much the leading edge. It's the frontier of healthcare, uh, at least in healthcare IT. And it's really exciting to get your thoughts. What is the best way for listeners to reach out to you? If somebody's listening to this, wants more information, wants to get in contact with you, um, email, Twitter, LinkedIn, your website, where should folks go?
3: yeah uh, website and LinkedIn are always great options so what LinkedIn is just claim capital website is claim dash capital.com um, honestly if you want to email me directly even, even if you just want to continue the discussion about some of the AI stuff we've done I would love to have that conversation um you can um, we can probably throw my email into the bottom of the of the post um, Daniel but just spencer at claim capital.com feel free to reach out to me there we'd love to um, keep talking with everybody.
1: I was going to say, you all are the only folks I know that have your photo in your email. And I think it adds a nice little personal touch. So (laughs) kudos to you all.
3: Thank you. Yeah. No, it was uh, awesome being on with you all. Thanks for giving us an opportunity to uh, join and, you know, talk through something that's this
0: important uh, in the industry. Yeah, we're happy to have you guys and maybe future episodes. We'll see what the questions all come in play. All right. Well, that is it for us today, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you on episode two. Bye-bye. If you like today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG, Wilshire Group at TWG Health, on Facebook at the Wilshire Group, or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer
1: to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel.
0: If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review,
1: rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.